So if anybody tells you that women weren't apostles, you show them that part in Acts and say, yes, they were. <laughs> um, anyway, um, so we're coming to the end of Eastertide. Next week we'll be celebrating Pentecost Sunday, uh, which is seven weeks after Easter Sunday, and it's the traditional birthday of the church, and I'll explain more about Pentecost next week, so, you know, show up. So the church has this calendar that starts with Advent, and it's really symbolic. It's not meant to be like, you know, on the third day of Advent, we'll celebrate this or that or the other thing. So the church calendar kind of goes like this. It starts with Advent. We are waiting for the birth of Jesus, and then we have Christmas and Christmas tide, and then we're good with that. And then in the church calendar, we symbolically go through the, the life and the, the death of Jesus through Lent and Easter. And then after Easter to Pentecost, Jesus is, is with us during this time, sort of teaching us sort of thing, according to Acts, at any rate. And then after Pentecost, uh, the, the Holy Spirit breathes, the church is born, and then from now until Advent, the church calls it ordinary time. So that's just sort of a general church calendar, and sort of where we are is at the very end of Easter. Uh, Easter's not just that one Sunday in March or April, uh, but it is a season, just like Christmas is not that one day, but it is 12 until Epiphany. But anyway, that's probably more information than you needed to know, but just in case you're like me and you're visual and you want to know why we're talking about what we're talking about. So, the number 40 is very symbolic in Scripture. It shows up often in the Old Testament and the New Testament. Moses led the Israelites through the desert for 40 years. Um, Jesus prayed in the desert for 40 days. It rained for 40 days and 40 nights. 40 is a very symbolic number. According to the book of Acts, in the few verses right before what we read, um, the resurrected Jesus has been with and appearing to the disciples for 40 days. Verse 3 says that he presented himself alive to them with many convincing proofs. And now, in this scene, he is ascending into heaven. And this scene reminds me an awful lot of... Uh, the Transfiguration, which is another churchy event. Uh, the stories before Jesus was crucified where Peter and James and John go with Jesus up to a mountain to pray and Moses and Elijah appear and Jesus is transfigured into you know, shining white robes and that sort of thing. And Peter says, let's stay here. <laughs> let's just build tents and stay. And Jesus is like, no, we have to go. We have a mission we have to do. Right? That's sort of like this now. Elijah and Moses, incidentally, were also believed to have been assumed into heaven, like Jesus. So there's a lot of symbolism in this story. Uh, a lot of things that the original hearers would put together so um, that the, the person who is writing this story will be able to bring those stories to the front. So people will remember them and they'll put, they'll go, oh yeah, so Jesus and Moses and 40 days and wandering in the desert and all that sort of stuff. It just sort of all gels for them. Maybe not so easy for us, but for them it was pretty easy. 
It's only in the book of Acts that Jesus spends 40 days with the disciples. And scholars believe that the person who wrote Acts is the same person who wrote Luke. And if that's the case, uh, then he or she is being fairly self-contradictory because in Luke 24, Jesus is carried up into heaven right after the road to Emmaus conversation that happens that we talked about a couple of weeks ago. And I must admit that like the transfiguration, this story of the ascension is a little bit much for me. Um, I don't know what to make of it, frankly. Uh, I don't know what to make sometimes of some of the more mystical stories in the Bible. I admit that I am fairly skeptical sometimes. But Eugene Boring and Fred Craddock give an excellent description of this event for me. They write, and I'll quote for a while, that Luke portrays a spiritual reality in very objective terms uh, that we can sort of relate to. Um, the description is a testimony to the reality of the event of God's having exalted Jesus to be Lord. It's not meant to be a photographic description. Here and elsewhere, Luke portrays events objectively by turning them into objects. Right? This is analogous to modern portrayals of atoms as a nucleus and a small colored ball that orbits electrons. Right? Or the phenomenon of light is sometimes pictured as tiny particles that bounce off of objects and into our eyes or waves in the ether. Right? Electricity is portrayed, they write, as currents of electrons flowing through a wire. Now, those models are necessary for us to think and talk about those phenomenon, but we don't really believe that an electron is a little blue ball, right? Um, so with some of the biblical scholars, these portrayals are objectifying language and it's not meant to be taken literally and it's also not to be like me dismissed it as pure fantasy either Luke's language points to something greater they write sometimes theologians and scholars will call this a myth and they're not trying to say that it's untrue what they're trying to say is that something like this points to a transcendent reality and it's represented by pictures that we can relate to in this world. And so when I read that, I was like, all right, okay, I, I can get it. I've never seen a quark. Nobody's ever seen a quark. Scientists are pretty sure they exist. You can measure them. You can't see them. I can kind of take it from there. So that makes the Ascension story a little better. And Eugene Boring and Fred Craddock were disciples, pastors, and theologians. And, and Fred Craddock um, passed away a couple of years ago, uh, well known in disciples preaching circles and really revolutionized how preachers preach. And he would tell stories sometimes about how, you know, he would, he would give a sermon illustration for, uh, you know, tell a story to illustrate a part of scripture. And then after church, somebody would come up to him and say, did that really happen? And he would say, well, just because it's not fact doesn't mean it's not true. Right? And we're still not very far removed from our 11, by Luke's count, disciples. They want to know if Jesus has come to restore Israel. Are you going to restore it to its political grandeur? That's what they were thinking. Is the kingdom of God going to come and restore us 
to what we used to be. And I think that this narrative is pretty reminiscent of American Christianity to a certain extent, equating political successes and personal achievements with the kingdom of God being fulfilled. And he tells them it's not for them to know when, but that they will receive their power through the Holy Spirit, and they will be witnesses to the ends of the earth. And by extension, we're being told the same thing. Personal and political advancement is not proof of the kingdom of God. Money, property, prestige, those are not proofs of the kingdom of God. It's not here yet, says Jesus. But he also says that the kingdom of God is within us. The kingdom of God is here and now. That here, but not yet here. Scholar and theologian Amy Levine writes that this statement by Jesus is meant to show that the kingdom of God is present in the activities of Jesus. And so perhaps that's why the men in white robes in our scripture section today tell the apostles, why are you looking up into heaven? The kingdom of God has drawn near to us in the activities of Jesus, peacemaking, offering of mercy and grace, sharing food with our neighbors, helping people find affordable homes to live in, telling and showing people that God loves them, striving to make this world a safe place for all of God's creation, acknowledging systems of oppression and repression, and working to dismantle them, using our voices to speak out for those who have been silenced, lifting up those who have fallen. And like the disciples, we're buoyed for this activity by our devotion to prayer. Jesus prayed often. There are many times that it, you know, he'll go off alone to pray because he knows that he needs to fortify himself for the tasks that God is calling him to do. In that same way, we pray, we study, we join together for communion so that we can be fortified in our tasks, so that we can be encouraged and supported and nurtured. And then we stop looking up to the sky and we start looking around. And we see those things that need to be done. Pope Francis has said that you pray for the hungry and then you feed them. That's how prayer works. We pray and then we do. Until the kingdom of God is fully realized, until there is peace on earth, until all brokenness is healed, until all darkness has light until everyone knows what it's like to live in God's grace. We pray, and then we do. And it's difficult living knowing that the kingdom of God is already here, but also knowing that it hasn't been realized yet. But we catch little glimpses of it now and then. We just need to look around. Habitat for Humanity make sure that they provide houses for people who can otherwise afford them. Posada does wonderful work in our community for people that are housing insecure. Our garden, Derek and Lavella and all of the gardeners, donate hundreds of pounds of food every year to cooperative care. And the kingdom of God was present for Dion McGill. He's a teacher. He's grading papers. I have been a teacher's assistant. 
and I have been ever so grateful that I don't have to grade papers. <laughs> I don't think they tell you in teacher school how hard that can be. Um, and maybe that's why people go to math, because there's a right and a wrong. But let me tell you, when you're grading um, something that's subjective, that's really, really tough work. So he decided that he was going to go to Starbucks to finish some of his grading. And so he put in his earbuds, and he's walking around town. And he sees this woman coming up to the door. So he hurries a little bit to go see, you know, and opens the door for her. And he looks, and he can see her talking, but he can't hear because he's got his earbuds in. So he takes him out. And she said, what I said was, something smells really good. And at that point, he took his earbuds out and he noticed the odors that were wafting in, the coffee and the baked goods and all that that they have. And he said, yeah, you know, you're right. It does smell really good. And they started up a conversation. He goes over and he puts his stuff down on the table to grab a sandwich. And then he stood at the end of the line. You know, she had been up a few. And she waves him up a little bit closer. And he says, I just knew she was going to tell me that somebody stole my laptop because that was the kind of day I was having, right? And she said, I want to treat you today. And he said, I responded with the first thing that came to my mind. And I said, well, there's no need for that. And she said, there doesn't have to be a need. I want to. I have heard often that we take the action but we leave the results to God. God's ideas and plans and schemes are bigger and greater and grander and more humble and more precise and more personal than we could ever hope to imagine. We are called, we are urged, we are beckoned, we are sometimes challenged to be a part of making the presence of God visible to those around us. And in so doing, we can see the presence of God around everyone if we just look around. Amen.